Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Welcome to another episode of Code of Conversations. We have guest Rachel Babcock here today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we're glad to have you on. Um, but yeah, just to get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, you know, how did you get into coding? Yeah, so, you know, out of high school, I didn't go to college, um, didn't know what I wanted to do. So my parents encouraged me not to go because it was expensive. Um, so I didn't end up being kind of a hippie. Um, lived in New Zealand for a few years. Uh, while working well there, I worked for an animation studio, really tiny one. And, you know, kind of was around tech. There is some tech and coding involved in animation. Um, so I'd see that on the animators. I was a production coordinator. Um, but would see that on their screens. I was like, yeah, I could do that. Um, you know, fast forward through coming back to the States where he has a barista and then a warehouse, got married. Me and my husband decided we need real jobs. And I was like, yeah, coding. So I went to Nashville Software School to boot camp in Nashville. It's a nonprofit. It's uh, highly recommended. I really enjoyed my time there and have had you know good success since. Um, I've helped and worked with other software engineers that have come out of it. Um, so yeah, and I've worked in some front end with React, uh, back end and Node, Python, Rails, some database stuff now. Um, so just kind of a smattering of technology as you do the longer you work in it. So to, I think total, I've been coding since the end of 2018. So. Yeah. Interesting. So, um, yeah, like before the show, you kind of mentioned some of the uh, the series you worked on at the animation studio. You mind sharing with the audience? Sure. Yeah, it was about ten years ago. I worked on VeggieTales. Um, I was a production coordinator, um, so it would have been like 2011 through 2012, or very early 2013. Um, so yeah, it was really fun. Very fun environment. So I often like to try to bring that fun if I can to coding because it's very different. I mean, animators are just like, it's a, just a different breed of, it's not really like coding, right? Like a lot of animators mm -hmm. are like running around with Nerf guns and trying to get into character. So they'll all have like a mirror next to their desk to like look at their faces, right? So it's just 3D animation is very interesting, mm -hmm. but very technical. So anyway. Yeah. So like, uh... How, how did you uh, find the boot camp that you eventually attended? Um, my husband's roommate before we got married went to Nashville Software School. He had a great experience. Um, I mean, so that was kind of a, him, my brother found it. They also um, were funded through the VA bill, um, if you're familiar with how VA, um, like veterans can get um, their college education paid for, and my husband's a veteran, so that was a big reason he went. Um, so, and they have scholarships for like minorities, which is a, as a woman, I'm my minority. Mm -hmm. um, so they, you know, they focus on that. So it's just they just do cool stuff. So all yeah, that. Do you feel like the boot camp really prepared you for your first job in coding? I think so. I was really lucky um, that I went to change healthcare in Nashville. That was where my first job was. I was really lucky to be on a team that was really like supportive of new engineers. They'd hired people from NSS before. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a huge disparity from being at a boot camp and coding to like 
a real environment where you have databases with PHI or, um, you know, thousands upon thousands of records compared to like, you know, your boot camp capstone. So there, there's a big, you know, ooh, but I think my first, um, my senior, he always was like, you know, you put safeguards in place so that you don't, juniors shouldn't have to worry about it, right? So that was helpful. So like uh, when, when, when getting your first job, did you have to do a ton of interviews? And if so, like how did you prepare yourself for all that rejection? Um, I, so I had a spreadsheet and I was very like methodical, but it was really toward the end of boot camp, And I had a few like phone interviews here and there, but the first like in-person interview that I had was with the company they got hired with. So I got really, really lucky. I mean, 2018 was a good time to like get into it in terms of the economy and stuff. So I got really lucky, um, but I was prepared for, you know, whatever. Um, NSS has a pretty good network in Nashville for helping juniors get hired. So I think that was, was really fortunate. I know not all juniors have that experience, so. Welcome to the show, uh, Sean and Terrence. Hey, Kevin. Hi, everybody. Hi. Uh, glad to have y'all on. Uh, this is Rachel. Um... Good to meet you, Rachel, and good to see you again, Raja. Yeah. Hi. Hey, uh, Sean and Terrence, y'all mind giving uh, Rachel a little bit of background on who y'all are? Um, yeah. So I've been a developer for, I didn't actually listen to this podcast up to this point, so I'm not dropping into the context, but uh, <clears throat> I've been a developer for decades. I don't want to date myself, but yeah, decades. And uh, I became a CTO about four years ago. And in fact, my four-year anniversary was, was uh, just two days ago. And so... Um, Mostly what I do, other than being an engineer, when I get the chance, I like to help people level up their skills. And um, generally, I provide perspectives like um, what happens behind the scenes with us managers to give other uh, tech people an insight into what we're thinking and uh, why things are the way they are, that kind of stuff. I didn't practice my elevator pitch. <laughs> Yeah, um, this is kind of on the, on the spot, but uh, I'll, I'll give it a go. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm more recent uh, as, as far as develop, development goes. Uh, got my first developer job uh, three years now, four years now, something like that. Um, currently working as a, uh, a lead developer at a company um, that I recently just uh, started working at in August of last year, um, and it's it's been it's been tough. Like before that, I, I worked as a TA, um, or before before that, before my first tech job, uh, I worked as a TA for a coding boot camp, and uh, that was a lot of fun. And um, I'm not exactly sure how to answer the elevator pitch question <laughs> if you don't really have something set up already. Um, and I didn't want to go on a tangent, so I'm going to pause it here. But it's nice to meet you, Rachel. Thank you. Same. So, yeah, Rachel, uh, you kind of mentioned, like, um, the boot camp, and it, it did prepare, help prepare you uh, for your first job. But uh, there were some gaps there. So 
how did you fill in those gaps? Did you spend a lot of time outside of work learning or reaching out to mentors? Um, thankfully, uh, I was able to learn like on the job. Um, my personal time, work-life balance has always been like super duper important to me. Um, especially now I have a 16 month old baby. And so, um, you know, that's just kind of crucial is to have time during the work day to, to learn stuff if you need to, or, you know, have that as part of like a ticket that you're working. So thankfully, yeah, sorry, went off a tangent there, but yes, not, doesn't spend a lot of time. Um, so I probably could have, should have, should have, but did not. Oh, yeah, I definitely agree. Work-life balance is very important. Like we've all had situations where, you know, we spent a little more time we should have in front of the computer and kind of ends up burning, you know, burning you out. So A little. <laughs> oh, yeah. You've been working like crazy, Sean. Yeah, I actually I went at it. For, so I had COVID in January last year that lasted almost the entire month. And then mm -hmm. when I recovered from that and I came back on February 3rd. I went like 16 hour days, seven days a week until four weeks ago when it started to shut my body down. So now I'm, I don't think my boss is listening. So my CEO, but so now I'm kind of like at 20 hours a week, no weekends, no after hours, my boundaries for maybe a couple more weeks until I get back into a normal swing. I'm the CTO, so I can do that. <laughs> Do you find like you're kind of getting behind on uh, your job or are you able to accomplish everything you need in those 20 hours? Um, a lot of that, you know, what? that's a good question, because a lot of that was uh, <clears throat> bad management on my behalf. I I thought that um, I needed to step in and help the team because there was moments where there was just a lot going on and I had a particular skill set. But I taught my team the skill set and sort of how I think. And so right now I'm completely hands off, but my team is doing just fine. So it was uh, sort of a mix of like my own doing. But right now I think that everything's going great. Now everything's in good balance. So yeah, Terrence, uh, you're, you're a team lead as well. So how do you get your team on automatic just like Sean? Um. Well, I came into the team that I that I came into. Um, I'm, I want to say I'm pro probably lucky or blessed to to have to have teammates that are sort of autonomous in their work. Um, one guy's really bright. You know, I'll give him a task and he'll take it above and beyond and write documentation on everything. And he's very thorough. Um, and I haven't really, I haven't had. To answer your question, like I haven't felt like I needed to step in and say, okay, hey, you should be doing this, you should be doing that. A lot of the people that I work with are, are very autonomous, um, meaning that you give them a task, they ask the they ask the right questions to clarify any doubts before they jump into anything, and then uh, if they if they hit a roadblock, they'll speak up sooner than later, um, and be honest with with uh, the rest of the team as far as progress is concerned. Uh, and any unknown areas, I'm wor I work very closely with uh, the the other leads. That, well, there's one other lead of, of the team, um, 
and he works with like other, other departments, DevOps and project managers and, and things like that. But we work closely together to sort of uh, come up with a roadmap and we've broken down, we've broken out like, um, I won't get too deep, but we've taken, we've taken this large project that we've, that we need to accomplish over four months and broke it down into uh, epics and sprints and sort of have a roadmap of, of what we need to accomplish in order to hit our, our, uh, our goal of, um, of releasing the software on time. And it's, uh, it's sort of up to us to sort of stick to that and make sure that we're on the same, we're on that, that correct uh, path to get there. Um, so uh, that's mostly what I do day to day is just talk to people, come up with game plans, uh, find out any roadblock, any roadblocks before the, we even like hit them in the, like, like, I mean, like months ahead, like, and, and get the, the, the right people that would need to sort of unstick us, like to unstick us way, way earlier than we, than it would be like in March or April, like, Hey, we need this in DevOps. Can you do it now? We need to set up this on our pipeline. Can you do it now? Um, and yeah, so I hope that answered your question. That's sort of what I do on, on the day to day. That's a totally <clears throat> underrated skill being able to see that far down in the future and start dealing with the roadblock like four months before your team actually starts like yeah. like if you if you punt it off then you're going to be in the middle of a deadline when everything is crashing down on these roadblocks so yeah. i think that's a skill that is rare but so necessary the the, the thing about uh and I'm, I'm sorry to sort of take the conversation in this direction um i, I feel like I've, I've hogged the mic um let me know if i if i need to stop or not um but in my job, I work on these things called micro front ends. And so uh, you can think of them like small little applications uh, built in, in React. And so uh, in my mind, you know, a small app is like, okay, a to do app or a, a bingo app or something like really uh, like a toy. It doesn't do much, right? But the fact that uh, the fact that this micro front end or this application should be agnostic and reusable and it has to integrate with this library that is used across dozens of different teams and and different micro front ends that's where uh the complexity comes into play where you want to build an application and not make it so uh i guess whatever the word whatever the opposite word of agnostic is like so uh gnostic i guess you could say like so strict where it's like the app only works this way you can't use it any other type of way and it, it, it's not flexible. You have to make this flexible application that is reusable across different teams and different platforms. And, uh, and that's where the, the complexity comes into play to be able to see uh, f further enough ahead and, uh, and make sure that you're building something that's reusable and not so, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Fragile, like really strict and really fragile where if you change one thing, it'll just, it'll just explode. <laughs> yeah. I got a question for uh, both Raja and uh, Rachel. Uh, we all know the importance of like technical skills, uh, in, in the, in, especially early on in your career. But how important are you finding like communication skills and social skills in your career? Uh, <laughs> I would say that's ninety percent. Like you need to have ninety percent of my job. Like. Anybody can code. You can teach probably a monkey to code too. 
they can code given enough time a monkey can code too but communication is the key at least with software developers which i'm trying to improve myself at it's it's just not like communication uh with like person to person but also using the right technical terms when you're saying something when you're using react like you need to say those exact terms like use state use like those things matter a lot like when you're trying to move into like a senior developer position they look for it they look for that technical knowledge they look for you to say like even to a non technical person you need to explain something very simply like explain to a 5 year old like wh- what is react like what does it do what is your website do those are things that i'm like teaching myself recently i think uh i recently like i have it in my bookmark uh, i wanted to buy this book it calls i forgot about it's called it's something with storytelling i've been trying to like improve my storytelling skills um yeah i mean i, I so i mean the technical skills are important but i think i've worked with people who were super technical but maybe difficult you know mm-hmm. interpersonally so having being able to like relate to people well um creating a good team environment um i find that i work better when i am in a team that's like very like help like very open right you know like you know being positive and that sort of thing makes a big difference um so even like just interpersonal stuff like cuz i get stressed when i'm coding about something and if i'm struggling it stresses me out cuz i'm like oh no i need to get this done i'm not you know achieving or whatever and so even just i say that that sometimes just working on even like your own personal issues like my stress levels or things like that also i think affect how well you perform with coding speaking of stress how do you uh How do you personally go about managing your stress? <laughs> My husband would say something probably different than what I would say. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do find it helpful when I take like a walk. So working from home. Um, okay. If I take a break during the day, I normally feel less stressed. When I don't, I definitely feel more stressed. Um, so that helps me, but I think it's different for everybody. But also trying to not make it about myself like if i get feedback or a lot of like pr reviews right i mean that's i'm i don't take it as personal as i used to but that's just like a personal thing that i'm working on i don't know i don't know if that's where you're going with your question kevin <laughs> sorry yeah um <clears throat> getting out the house is important like you know a lot of times we just sit in front of the computer all day but i also find like you know walking or driving around that that kind of it it helps me get back on task as well like uh sometimes you just need to step away to come from the computer take a little break and then for whatever reason your thinking improves and you're kind of able to solve the problem and come back do y'all y'all agree or do y'all have like any other ways to manage your stress same for me like i would just step away from my computer probably scroll reddit get more stressed by it and come back to code again i guess 
Yeah, you, hear, you have that little voice in the back of your head that says, I should be working right now. I should yeah. be working right now. Honestly, <laughs> that Reddit is super addictive. Like, I think it's more addictive than anything, like Instagram, Facebook, like anything. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty addictive. I would say, um, for me, uh, physical activity has helped a lot with uh, like managing stress, um, going to the gym, going for walks, going for a run, um, just going to the beach and just sitting in my car and looking at the ocean, like uh, even like writing, like journaling, a lot has helped. Um, I'm finding that journaling in the morning, even before my day starts, and just like, like writing about what I'm thankful for or um, just trying to get myself into a good headspace about like, here's the things that I have to do. Here's the three, the three most important things I have to do for the day. And then um, I don't, that way, as soon as I go into work, I'm not distracted by anything else. Like I know, okay, these are the three things I want to accomplish today. And I, I can sort of focus in um, and just sort of work on those and, and uh, try to get them, try to get them done. And, and even if I don't get it, get them done, at least I know I, I focused in on, focused in on them, um, and didn't sort of, uh, waste my day. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, interestingly enough, a lot of people at my church are actually doing a technology fast, like outside of, you know, critical use, like work, et cetera. They're going to try to abstain from technology. And I find this extremely difficult because, uh, you know, the, these companies are engineering technology to become more addictive and, and trying to pull you deeper into, you know, the technology web, like coming to the metaverse, or pop on TikTok or LinkedIn and sit around and wait for likes. So how, how do y'all like disconnect? Like, how do you pull yourself away from that technology addiction? I think for me, <clears throat> it started from pulling away from news, anything that wants to have me in a constant state of fear or uncertainty or like just reactionary i just i just cut that out to the point where i'm not even gonna lie at this moment in time i don't even know who the primary prime winners of the primaries were i'm just so deliberately out of the loop and my mental health it just i just became so happy and such a positive outlook on life and and going out and meeting people on the streets as I walk by or it's just something I didn't do. Um, I haven't touched Facebook probably in about five months now uh, or Twitter. Um, I think LinkedIn is the only social media that I'm on and it's by and large positive. It's a good thing in my life. And uh, TV, I don't watch it anymore. I don't play video games. I literally just unplugged. And I could tell you right now, I just could not be happier. Um, it was a little bit of a battle though, because there's some addictions that happen, but you know, with the social medias, but, um, but yeah, so I, I, that was how I did it. I just, I just unplugged and, and I did it the most extreme way possible. Yeah, that's, uh, that's crazy, man. Cause I remember, you know, oh, uh, you about to say something terms. No, I, I was just, I was just whispering. Like, I don't know if I could, <laughs> I, I don't know if I could. I, I just came back from, um, from, uh, Honduras. I took a trip down there for about a week and some days and, uh, forcibly, like, I don't really have internet outside of Wi-Fi because I don't have any cell phone reception. 
And so I'm, uh, I'm used to not having service and I'm used to sort of, uh, like my mind just knows, like if I pick up my phone, like 80% of the apps that I have on my phone aren't going to work because I don't have the internet. So like Reddit, you know, Instagram, all those, all those apps that I would go on to sort of distract myself just don't work. But I know as soon as I find like a free hot, a free Wi-Fi hotspot or something, like I'm just immediately back on it. I'm just like, I'm like, okay, yeah, I gotta catch up. I gotta catch up. And um, I don't know. I don't know. If, I don't know if I could do it, Sean. If I could just like, if I could just cut everything off completely. Yeah, that like cold turkey. That's kind of hard. I kind of feel like uh, you know these phones. Um, well, it wasn't good. cold turkey. It was a many month process. Sorry, like, oh no, no problem, man. I, no, I was just saying. I feel like these phones are a huge cause of anxiety because you know they're always buzzing and making noise, and then you know we're we're tempted to go check our emails or if somebody missed our call. Sometimes it's good to just get away and not have anybody get in, be in contact with you if you can do that. There's some technology that's healthy, like Amazon, eBay. You know, stuff where you're, you know, it's essential to your life. Um, it's funny because 20 years ago, I'd have never thought a cell phone or Amazon or anything that was essential to life. You know, you just got up and you went to the store. But now it's like our life is so dependent on the click of a button. Um, it's just social media for me. What about you, uh, Roger or Rachel? You have any thoughts on this? Honestly, I think social social media like creates depression, anxiety, and all kinds of mental health problems. At least, at least for me, like whenever I open, like it's way too addicting. Everybody knows it's addicting. It's like I think currently, like people are right now on like short form videos. I guess I'm mm. addicted to them. Like I scroll through Instagram Reels, like probably for 20 minutes or 30 minutes i can't get out of it like it's too addicting to have like that change of pace like this short form okay this done this is done this is done and i don't know i uninstalled instagram after some time reinstalled it back again i mean could not stay stay like that because it's good to have it to communicate with your friends but also bad in a way that you know you waste all of your time on it and also you'll get um how should i say you get jealous or you get depressed that all of your friends are doing this 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 and this but you're just staying at home and doing nothing but that's not the case though you're having your own life it's your own life you're like you have to compare it to yourself and not to like you know people on instagram maybe they're having their bad days too which they're not showing on social media absolutely um yeah i mean it's a love love hate relationship there's there's things that i really enjoy about it like friends that i have in new zealand right that i haven't seen in 10 years are able to like see their kids although i don't post pictures of my daughter's face because i don't trust um the big tech companies with her face um so i i generally don't have it on my phone um and then it's just hard with Facebook because, like, if you ever comment on a thread, like, you'll be checking it, be like, oh, what did someone else say? Um, so I just generally don't do much on there. If I am on there, I'm just, like, looking at people or maybe, like, liking something. But I don't have them on my phone most of the time. 
That helps. I do like occasional like dumb games though. Yeah, I mean, it's just pretty interesting because uh, I kind of feel like a lot of these social media platforms, uh, like, is they actually banned China in several states. Like, uh, it's kind of a tool of war as, as well as, you know, like a mind control tool because, uh, you know, we're, we're literally creating a generation of, of kids with super short attention spans. Like, if not constantly getting that dopamine hit every 15 seconds, they start going crazy, like. You take you take a phone away from some of these kids, and it's almost like they they feel like they're dying or something. So, you know, it's 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 really interesting. It's almost like we're merging with technology, and also like it affects a lot of people. Like small things affect a lot of people. Uh, I don't know if you guys know this, the Kia challenge on TikTok. I don't know if, like though, mm -hmm. so, so somebody was showing these kids how to steal Kias and uh, Hyundai's. Like you just, it's like 15 or 30 seconds and you can just steal the car. So what they're doing is they're stealing these cars and they're like, you know, either killing themselves or like hurting others or just plain stealing the car. I'm like, you're 15 to 17 years old. Like, what are you doing stealing the car? So I'm like, I don't know if like, that's a necessary thing that TikTok should ban it, but they're not doing it. So that's like on the bad side of social media, I guess. Yeah, interesting enough, the TikTok in China is completely different than the one in America. Theirs is more focused on education and informative videos where ours is like entertainment, these crazy challenges. And like you just mentioned, it's extremely influential. Like kids were literally eating Tide Pods because of the Tide Pod <laughs> Challenge. Yeah, I mean, it, it, they have a strong machine learning algorithm to push all these things in front of your face. I can say that, you know, they have some good engineering coding, I guess, but bad for us. So Brian Pulliam just made a comment. Dumb games are the best. I was a dumb game developer for a while. <laughs> what do y'all think about that? Yeah, I, I would agree. Like. I'm I'm happy playing tic tac toe. I'm I'm literally happy playing like Connect Four or something like that. I don't need these extreme games. <laughs> mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's really crazy. I feel like games are teaching our kids like gambling at an early age. Like I hate when my stepson he starts playing Roblox because uh, you know he can literally go up and buy just start buying stuff. You know, and there's like nothing's really stopping them. You know, they could just, if, if your credit card is linked on the Xbox, they can literally run up your credit card. But, you know, he's been good about not doing that. But the fact that that option is there is kind of crazy to me. Yep. I mean, th there are some good games, too. Not not all games are bad, but I don't know. I don't like these new games that are coming out. They're, I think they're, like, way too addicting, and people are trying to, like, buy things to show off on social media. Like their favorite YouTuber has this skin or whatever that costs like $30 and he's going to buy this too. This is like a 10 year old kid who's going to buy the same skin. Yeah. yeah. You don't want to let your kid uh, watch Ryan's toy reviews because they're going to come oh, no. crazy asking you for stuff. I mean, he's making millions of dollars. That's some good marketing, I guess. 
Oh yeah. Do, do, do y'all think that's healthy though? Like a, a a young kid that can get any toy he wants when he wants? No. You need to let them stay humble, I guess. I think after a while though, he's gonna learn. Like I, I mean, so the thing about dopamine, right, or serotonin, right? You're gonna you if you do the same thing over and over again, eventually that it's not gonna hit the same. Meaning that. Uh, that's slang for it. You're not going to get that same effect of happiness. If you could just always go out to Target and buy the same or buy the newest toys, right? Every single time. And uh, he's, he probably doesn't enjoy those toys because it's, 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 he's always in front of a camera. He's in front of a camera. He's got to, he's got to react for views. He's got to be excited. He has, he, his brain knows the song and dance of like, okay, camera, get the new toy, look excited record video, put it up for views, make mom and dad proud, and then rinse, repeat the next day or the next week or whatever, right? But think back, 1999, I'm dating myself now, when I got a Nintendo 64 with Super Mario, I'm, I thought, oh my gosh, this is the greatest thing ever. Like Mario's in 3D and he can, you, t- you tilt the joystick and he can flip and run and the, the internet, what's that? I don't care about that. I wanna go home and play Mario. I wanna go home and play Donkey Kong Country. Like. That's what that's that was my uh, my happiness and I I was limited to one game a year that was it it was like and you have to make it count whatever it was it was one game a year and with, out of everything you chose you got to pick one and the limiting factor of of back in the day versus now it's it's crazy there's so many there's so many choices right like and take Netflix for example like. I'll, I'll, I'll admit, I take forever to find something to watch because there's so many options. Like, I wish we could just go back in the day where it's like channel three, whatever's on channel three is what's on channel three, or you flip it to channel five or seven or 11 or 13 and and that's it. Unless you wanna go into like the religious channels on the higher you go or the Hispanic channels, but there was like a set number of channels. Now it's just too many options. And I think like to bring it back to the original choice, or the original discussion of, of that Brian's toys reviews, I think he's probably not as happy as he appears in those videos. I think I think he's probably just like he probably just wants to be a normal kid, and, and he probably won't know it until he really grows up and looks back and be like, "Dang, like I didn't I didn't have a childhood. My childhood was in front of a camera." Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. When I was a kid, I don't think the Nintendo was even out yet. It was an Atari. And at that point, we had like five games. And when I got a Nintendo, I might have had like 10 games. And when I was an adult and got a PlayStation, I maybe got like 30 games. But you made them work, as you said. But right now, if I ever do, and I don't, but if I ever do get a, uh, a game on my phone, it's such a different experience because they're designed to addict you and then prevent you from making the progress you want. And it leads to frustration, which leads to a credit card. You know, mm-hmm. do I do I want to progress somewhere in the next few hours? There's $99. If I want to wait three weeks and just buy a little bit of these gems, you know, then there's $10, but then that's not enough. So here's $10 more. It really is a cycle of, you don't feel achievement because you're kind of forced to pay. And you don't feel, at least I personally don't feel a sense of achievement on games that micro uh, transact me like that. 
even on the PlayStation 5, I was playing uh, Valhalla, Assassin's Creed Valhalla, because I love those big open world games. But microtransactions, you can beat the game without it, but all the fun stuff is in paying for it. And you just pay and pay and pay and pay. You turn a $40 game into $600 after, you know, so, after so much. And uh, the sense of the sense of satisfaction isn't there. The learning isn't there. I felt like uh, as a kid, some of those games, it was fun to solve the puzzles and the challenges, but I don't mm-hmm. get that sense in modern games. Yeah, you can pretty much buy your way to victory. Like they literally make the grind so long and strenuous, just like, uh, let me just pay this 15 bucks and get these gems to make progress. But, you know, I kind of feel like uh, in this day and age, like we're more immediately satisfied, but we're not as deeply satisfied as in the past. Like you remember back then, uh, like if you wanted to hear a song, you had to record it on the radio. You got to have a tape, you got to sit by the radio and wait for it to before it to come on. Yep. Sit by sit by, wait for it to come on. And then you have your you have your tape inside. You have to hit record. You have to stop it as soon as the song went off so you don't get any commercials. Yep. Uh, well, welcome Brian. Good, great to have you on. <laughs> Man, I missed the Atari story from Sean. I wasn't quick enough. I was wanting uh, to you hear didn't the Atari. Much. Okay. Which version? Uh, I believe it was the fifty two hundred. Oh, okay. 83 era. I was a uh, Atari 800. So oh. I'm only a th- I'm only a thousand years old, so it's totally fine. So Man, I didn't know they had like different versions of Atari. I'm just familiar with Atari. Oh, Kevin, gosh, why do you gotta make the us? The SP, so the 800, the 5200, Pong. Yeah, yeah <laughs> they had different Pong. And then eventually the what did the, what came out after a while? Jaguar, Atari Jaguar. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That was expensive. That was like a home version of the of the actual arcade hardware. So it was like six hundred dollars back in the day. Like not yeah. in today's dollars. It was expensive. It was pretty expensive. Yeah. I worked yeah, with Nolan Bushnell a bit in twenty fifteen and twenty sixteen. No, did you really? We had a, we had a game company called Brainworks. So I did since I was teaching at a boot camp at the time. They contracted me in to uh, teach their staff some stuff, and so I got to work with him a bit. That was pretty cool. That's awesome. So I worked in game development for like eight years, um, but like it was in the uh, late '90s, early 2000s in children's software. So, uh, awesome. but I was an avid, avid gamer before that. So Atari 800, I loaded, um, I loaded games from a set tape. Like that's that's how old that system was. You would like press, like record and play in order to load from a cassette tape into the hardware, and then you'd wait like 25 minutes, and then half the time it wouldn't work because like it wasn't reliable and so then you'd like take an hour and a half to load a game correctly and it was some lame like nuclear power plant simulator that was really boring and didn't have good graphics and stuff so are you all familiar with chuck e cheese oh yeah yeah. so i don't know if you know who nolan bushnell is but he's he's the Mm -hmm. founder of chuck e cheese and a co-founder for atari yeah are are you into gaming rachel Say again. Oh, I was just asking if Rachel was into gaming. Uh, not really. When I say dummy, I mean like I play like Merge Dragons on my iPad, and, like yes. in the evening. So it's like you know, just kind of chill. You know, it's like oh yes, I finally merged that egg. But are so, there any microtransactions, or there's nothing that's like? Oh, there are. There definitely yeah. are. But I, I, you know, give myself a budget. 
<laughs> not allowed. I was about to ask, are you F to P or are you more like budget to P, like not free to play? So I don't know what FTP means. It means like free to play. Like it means like you you play a game that's microtransactions, but you stick it to the man and you like never buy anything and you just get as far as you can without spending any money. But it sounds like you have a small budget. So yeah, most of the time I do that. It's like, okay, six dollars. Okay. Gotcha. And that's yeah, like yeah. the month. Like so yeah, that's whatever awesome. that is. <laughs> give myself a little boost and then I'll like wait. So. Sean, I used to, that, the Chuck E. Cheese used to be the closest arcade to where I grew up. And <laughs> so uh, we had that, like being the, being like young kids that were like 10 or 11, we found out that one of the kids rides that takes tokens is like a little stupid, you know, helicopter that goes up and down had like a carpet floor and there was a hole in the carpet. And if you reached into that hole, you could just grab like gobs of tokens and like go play free, free video games. And so we like, one of us would always go sit in like, in like in this much too small, like kitty helicopter and just reach in and grab like, like as many tokens as we could in this like 60 second ride. So we could go back and play video games and eat really bad pizza, so. I have really good hand-eye coordination, so Years back, I used to go to Dave Bust, Dave and Buster's, hmm. Buster's, and uh, there's certain games that I could just get the timing. Yeah. So I'd walk in with twenty dollars and walk out with like ninety thousand of those tickets, like yeah, or even more. And uh, I finally got rejected. They finally figured it out in one setting that I was doing that, and it didn't end for me very well. Kind of like Vegas, you know. They, <clears throat> you until you win but uh yeah i love those arcades especially when you can game them yeah it's fond memories i had a i had a gaming problem when i was younger kevin like i live mm -hmm. in the seattle area and the closest nickel arcade was in you what beaverton oregon and so my friends and i who all worked for Domino's, would save all our tips and then we would go down and play like the really hard arcade games um, that were normally 50 cents, but at a nickel arcade, they were a dime, right? And you could play Dragon's Lair, you know, or these other really impossibly hard games. And we'd spend like $200 in nickels, like over a weekend wow. and just cram like six people into a hotel room and just like play, play the, you know, just get as far as possible in these games. You could never afford to make it any farther in because like they were just so impossibly difficult. So $200 in nickels sounds like the first hour for me in Vegas. Yeah, it's a lot. So. <laughs> crazy I've, I've actually never been to vegas i think it's good that i don't get started with the whole gambling thing uh, yeah i don't think you're missing much oh yeah almost nearby I mean, was right near the border there's a casino what is it called i've actually been uh, with broken bow oklahoma the, they got the casinos up there like the, on the indian reservations yeah but, uh, it just doesn't appeal to me. I kind of feel like you're just dumping your money to somebody else's pocket because they, they, you know, they're, they're engineered to make the owners rich. If if it wasn't, then they would be out of business. Mm -hmm. The house always wins. I mean. So, so uh, I heard y'all mention, man. Y'all thought the uh, pizza at Chuck E. Cheese was bad. I thought it was. Uh, well, I mean, when you're a kid, it's when pizza. Kid. It's amazing, right? Like, come on now. You didn't pay for it. So when you're an adult, you know, it's a, I think you expect better. Yeah. 
it's not quite school pizza, but it's like between school pizza and probably some national brand I probably should mention, but. Uh... <laughs> gas station pizza? Oh, I've never had gas station pizza, so I can't really accurately place that. Rachel. Where would you? Where would you put that? Rachel? Such a thing. It's a thing. So, like in Kansas City, there's like this. It's called Casey's, and it's like at gas stations. And I have some extended family that thinks it's the best pizza. Me and my husband don't say anything inside, but it's mind-boggling. So, is it above or below school pizza? That's what we need to know. I mean, I guess it's above. school pizza I, I don't know i like like you know oven you know what's the word fire oven roasted eggs? like fire roasted i'm i'm sorry i'm struggling with like in a pizza oven like thin crust yeah. like 800 degrees kind of like really quick like biology and stuff yeah like yeah the, i like fancy bougie pizza. yeah we'll yeah. just say that yeah. so all of it's kind of like this to me so i don't Got know it. but maybe it's better but there is gas station pizza Okay. No, that's terrible. It used to make me sick because I used to eat that uh, at my first job. You know, you didn't want to spend that much money because you were kind of on the budget. I was making like 60K a year. Like, oh, let's just go to the gas station and get a slice of pizza. But it's disgusting, really. You pay more that's... money in the Pepto Bismol than you do for the, uh, <laughs> doing the pizza. I think you worked out and, and, uh, against you there. I think the house won there, too. But I'm, I'm, I'm out here is ramen. We used to do that at uh, in, in school. We they would give us a twenty dollar budget for the week, and we went to school near a, a Jack in the Box. And Jack in the Box had a deal where you could it was a dollar twenty five for two tacos. So every day we we would get two tacos. Everybody would get two tacos for a dollar twenty five, and then at the end of the week you would have like fifteen bucks or something like that, give or take. Um, and one kid did that for I don't know how long, and he saved up and got a PlayStation Four. Like, but he but he looked terrible. Like it it just the his he like lost a bunch of weight and like he just did not look healthy at all. Um, but you know he could play he could play Bloodborne, so he's he was happy. <laughs> it's just you know, as long as the game was Fortnite. <laughs> yeah. And is it just me or was like uh, Pizza Hut and even Domino's, they tasted a lot better back in the day. I don't know if it's subjective or not, because I remember a similar thing. But maybe, you know, but as I became an adult and made money, a lot of money, I tended, I tended towards higher quality food. <laughs> you know, my palate changed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it has to do with uh, also like the nostalgia goggles. So like whenever I think of Pizza Hut, I think of like when they gave out those demo discs for PlayStation a long time ago, mm. and like you didn't really care that it was like you didn't really care that it was it was Pizza Hut. You just wanted the game, the game plus the pizza. And like in my mind, I'm like, oh yeah, this pizza tasted great, but in reality, it probably didn't taste that great. I just liked it because I got a free game with it. Yeah, it's like a game with a side of free pizza, right? Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, 15 bucks to get a game? Okay, cool. Whatever pizza, I don't care. I, I just want Crash Bandicoot. Just, just, give it, just give me the game. Sean, you said ramen? Or like, are you talking about like bougie food that's overpriced now? No, like Kevin was mentioning, you know, when, when you're on a budget or something, you know, you go to get that gas station pizza, which... Mm -hmm. They just don't have that here. Now I'm so intrigued. and I'm, But I am leaving California in a month. Maybe they'll have it where I'm going. Um, 
But out here, when you're on a budget, it's one dollar cup of noodles. Right. Mm, a dollar. Yeah, here, it's like, like a, a whole a dollar. Oh, y'all were just saying that here, like one pack is like twenty five cents at Walmart. So that's a, that's crazy expensive. But but you get the cup and you get the you get the noodles and everything. You just add hot water. Yep. You get like you know one and a half ounces of delicious salty noodles. So for a dollar, these ones are a little buttery. I always say bacon, butter, and garlic are the three things that'll make anything good. Yeah. In that order, you add it. You add it in well, that order. one or the other. Okay. So does that put, <laughs> so does that make like pasta carbonara like at the top? Because I think it has all three of them, right? You got the butter, and then you you know wipe the pan with the garlic, and it's got bacon in there. So uh, that would be at the top of my list. <laughs> I like it. What, what did you do at your school, Raja? Because uh, didn't you go to school in India? Yeah. I mean, my mom used to cook food for me. I didn't eat out much, oh. but <laughs> but when I became older, I used to eat like pizza. I used to eat a lot of Domino's though, because oh. we have like two. We have Domino's and Pizza Hut. I hated Pizza Hut, so Domino's, Domino's no wins option. on the garlic front. I like yeah, but uh, no, I like the Domino's cheese called something i think it's called cheese burst or something maybe you guys have it but oh that was good cheese burst. It, was, it was like diabetes but it was good yeah, so, so what's your favorite food? what's your favorite cheap food racial cheap food like that you get out somewhere or just like random cheap food anything um i really like sweet pickles Sweet pickles, Lou. Okay. Yeah. My husband thinks it's strange, but um, I also love ramen. So, but I, I try not to get the cheapest brand because I know it's mm. super great for you, but it is delicious. Yeah. The, the Korean brand is actually uh, really good. The Shin Ramen, it's, it comes in the red pack. Have you got that before? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Somebody was saying in the Bay Area they paid $36 for ramen last week. Wow. That doesn't surprise me. At was a, it at like a... real ramen, though? Like yeah, real, it was like, yeah, it was real ramen, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's different. Like, when it's prepared, you, you go to, you go somewhere, you sit down. Like, it's actually prepared. It's different than just, like, buying yeah, it. All the flavor just bursts in your mouth with every mm. bite. No, I've never actually had, like, ramen at a restaurant. Is it, like, really worth it? Or? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's hella worth it. Oh yeah, it's so different. It doesn't compare. I think oh, it's worth. Goodness. I think it's worth trying. I don't know if it's worth thirty six dollars, but guys, that's like seven Costco chickens. Can we just acknowledge? Like, that's a lot of Costco chicken. Like, but do you? But but is the chicken filled with noodles? Does it though? burst in your mouth with every bite? Well, I mean, the chicken. Yeah, I mean, like, I could get one every day of the week. Or I could get ramen once. Like, come on now. Like, and you're not even including tax or tip. That's like five like hot dog specials from Costco for a dollar fifty as well. So like, that's like ten meals right there. We got to come up with an algorithm. We we got to we have to weigh this. 
Uh, Rachel, what kind of software engineering do you do? Or are you in software engineering? I am. Um, I, I'm a full-stack developer currently at um, a company called Hinge Health. They um, do like virtual PT stuff. We have like sensors that um, people wear to help them do physical exercise um, or PT, like, you know, physical therapy. Um, so I work with React, Node, Python, some Rails, database stuff. Um, I was at Change Healthcare, which is like big in corporate and now I'm at a startup. So there's been quite a, the last six months have been very, there's been a lot of growth for me because I know I'm like, oh yeah, let me tunnel into this production database and do something. And that was really terrifying. Um, they're changing it. They know that's not, you know, the best pattern. <laughs> I say that because I was like, this is terrible, guys. Don't do this. They're like, yeah, we have to do it. I will how our infrastructure set up. Do you do you specialize in anything, or are you sort of like a jackie of all trades? Um, I generally specialize in front end. I was working in primarily only front ends before this job, so they hired me because they need a front end. I work in their our billing system, and it's all like airflow. It started as like a data engineering group, and so they're like, we need a UI for our stakeholders, which is our internal like revenue management team so that's it's kind of why they wanted to bring me on but i've been having to learn to be a jackie of all trades because it's a small team for a minute it was like three of us um okay is this yeah. your uh is this your first where you're at now is this your first job or a subsequent one it's my second tech job so i've been doing coding since 2018 to boot camp um yeah my first one was Change healthcare for like three years, and then I've been here well three and a half. Hmm. So been doing about four years. So. Was your first one? Uh, was it a startup or was it a larger company with like a larger team? So change healthcare is really big. They're now Optum. I don't know if you know. Yeah. Um, so they're I mean, they're. Oh well, anyway, they're the big healthcare company. They're they kind of. They've been around a long time, big corporate. The team I was on, thankfully, kind of had a startup vibe because they were like acquired by Change Healthcare. Um, so that helped. But it was, you know, corporate you know, has a lot of processes in place for anything. Mm -hmm. If you're going to production, you have to fill out all these forms and do all this stuff. And um, so now it's like, now we're, we're putting it up there. We're going to just try it. Just go for it. So <laughs> just very different. How was your experience like? like when you transitioned from larger team like what like how much of a difference was it when you went to where you're at now where there's a smaller team is uh like where you're like 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 what kind of a experience or a transition or like like how did that how, how did you feel about that in what way like from a tech perspective or like, like in terms of how you apply your skills or what's expected of you um yeah, there's definitely, so it's taken me about six months to feel comfortable <laughs> just mm -hmm. because one, the business context is really heavy in healthcare billing. Um, and going from the team I was on, it was very greenfield, but we were very much siloed into like, I was working on a micro front end thing and that's what I was doing every day. And mm -hmm. all our stuff was very well planned. And then going to a startup, it was like working on all this stuff and it's kind of chaotic. And we don't know what we're going to work on in next month. Um, we kind of do, but it's not ironed out yet. It probably won't be ironed out until you get there. 
Um, so all that took a lot of adjustment. That was hard. But the smaller team, um, I think it's taken me time to figure out how to like learn how to like take ownership of things and that be okay. Because at first it was like, okay, you're telling me kind of what to do. I know what I'm supposed to do to going to a team where it's like, oh, I can just go research this and like, this is a problem. We should fix it. Here's how we could fix it. Right. So that, that's been a, something I've been learning how to do. I don't know if that answers your question. I'm sorry. I'm always interested in how people's experiences are when they transition from one place to another. Like even Terrence, I feel like I learn a lot when he talks about um, his experience as a manager and getting into ma into leadership and that stuff. And when I talk with, I'm a long year, a long way removed from being a beginner, even though I feel like a beginner a lot with the way that technology shifts. But I feel like I learn a lot from other people's experiences. I'm glad you can learn something because I, I feel like when I talk, I don't make any sense to myself. And I look back and I'm just like, what the heck did I just say? I have no idea. I don't want to watch the recording. Like, <laughs> I want to paint with my people idea. right now. <laughs> it's very different. I tell the story all the time. When I had about 17 years of experience, I was a senior architect at Experian at Free Credit Score. And... Um, I was responsible for a lot of the guidelines and I was also acting as a platform engineer, you know, writing the frameworks and stuff. And uh, one of the, we had a junior developer, her first job, she was only six months a developer, uh, straight out of college, six months of experience at this company. And she asked me a lot of, she was complaining about something, which happened to be my, my coding that she was complaining against. And I learned solid, S-O-L-I-D, and test-driven and, uh, you know, TDD and unit testing through her, is I just had not been exposed. This was like in 2004, you know, in the early days of all that. And uh, I, it just opened my mind and blew me away. It changed everything. So even, so I, I'm the, I have the attitude that even though I have all this experience, it's so often I learn the most, not from senior developers, unless like I'm interested in a very specific thing, but junior, uh, like maybe between junior and intermediate, uh, they just think some of them, the way they think just opens my mind and blows me away. Yeah, I have a similar story when, when Git became the norm, right? Like in college, and then all of a sudden you were like, you, you, same thing, Sean, it was like, it's like, wait a minute, what's this Git thing? What are we talking about? Just ask any college student, right? And then that, that became the way of saying, oh, wow, there's a lot coming through here that a lot of what we might have learned 15, 20, or 25 years ago was under a set of constraints that just don't exist anymore, right? Mm -hmm. um, like when I was in game development, one of my friends went to go work on like a PlayStation game and he had to create a, a like a real-time interactive 3D game. He worked in this game called Sly Cooper. And the addressable memory space for the PlayStation at the time was like three megs, three megabytes. And he made a cartoon game running at like 30 frames a second, fully 3D in three megs of space, right? Like, it was a PlayStation? Yeah. And so it was like the optimization and the skill set you need to make that happen is just very different. Like it's like NASA level constraints, right? 
But that doesn't mean that you want to take that same framework and go create regular software. You go bring up the task manager on any PC right now and you look at like, oh my gosh, you look at Gmail and it's using like 400 megs of memory and you just, you're losing your mind. You're like, how can you be using more than a hundred times the memory when all you have to do is send emails um, when when you know what uh, what other people have done with a lot less. But it doesn't mean that this is better or worse. It's optimizing for a different outcome. And, different. Yeah, and people have learned all these great new techniques for optimizing for the outcomes we care about now. You know, I wouldn't track a PlayStation 1 developer kit down on eBay. I have one. It's actually yeah. two megabytes, not three. And, oh, it's two. Uh, yeah, there you go. Those constraints, I just don't know how. I lost interest. I'm like, that's too extreme for me. I, yeah. I say hello world in Node.js, and it's already at 238 megabytes of memory. Yeah. It, it's a special breed. It's like security engineers. Like, they are probably born that way. I don't know how their brain works or why they like what they do, but I'm glad someone does because I could not. Like, I have a friend that built the, uh, his name's Brad, who had a lot to do with uh, LucasArts and like building the game system that a lot of the early adventure games were built on. And he was working on something called Tiny Game, which was meant to be a little race car going on a track. And it was like 67 bytes like bytes, like, and you're just like, I don't, what, what are you talking about? Like, how do you, and it's like overriding the memory buffer in order to get this diagonal, like, you know, like directly addressing memory and just weird, creepy things. It's like the, what the kids do now to like hack all of the mistakes that exist in the bugs, like for Minecraft, you know, and they make, they can make this happen, but then an update comes out and suddenly those, those bugs have been fixed and now they have to find a different way to leverage all of these uh, special tips and tricks is wild. That's so crazy. Yeah. Um, I would love to stay, but I have to go head out to the church. I'm their camera and sound and audio person. I can't be late, but I'm actually already 10 minutes late. But uh, it was good to meet you, Rachel. Good to see you again, Raja. And uh, Brian, it was good to finally get on a call with you. It's like, yeah. Not it. Oh, no worries. Yeah, happy to chat anytime. And Terrence, we'll meet up. Yeah. Sounds All right, good. sorry, we'll catch you Thanks next for time. Having you, Devin. It's been a blast. I'm glad to have you on, man. All right, take care. All right, catch you later. Thank it's you, crazy. Man. Like the the I feel like the level of program is back then were just like on a on a higher plane almost. Like uh yeah, I mean maybe like you know, like what Rachel's probably going through with regards to the the breadth of technologies you have to learn as a full stack developer is mm -hmm. orders of magnitude more complicated than what a game developer might do because the the amount that they had to work with was so narrow and so it's like I just see it as like those developers with very specific use cases had depth of expertise in a very very narrow field it was a long skinny rectangle right and now it's like you flop that rectangle on its side and Rachel's got to now go through front end and back end and, and, and node and react and, Oh, I don't know. Like, and then you've got some pipeline that, you know, that the company has decided, but you need to stitch it together with this other thing and the complexity and actually stitching all of those pieces together to save you time. Um, it's a different kind of problem, but like, you know, you go read up on a John Carmack and like, people will revere him as a game developer god because he's this really long skinny rectangle that he could do things that a lot of developers never could but it's because it was a narrow field he just went as deep as he could and um 
the use cases that Rachel has to handle now are 10x the size that a John Carmack would have to do in game developer. It's just how the industry is now. Like you, you have three people on your team, right? Like, and you're trying to do what? Like combine sensor data, like store it, like be able to do video and like have like video conferencing and not have latency and like I can I can all like and then there's privacy issues. Everything's got to be encrypted. Like nobody had to deal with that when they were in game development. You don't have to worry about encryption. Like you're running on a disk, right? Like you probably didn't even install anything. So it's I don't know that they were smarter, Kevin. I think we have more to deal with now than in a lot of use cases than maybe some of those people did back in the day. I don't know. What do you what do you think, Rachel? Well, I mean, thankfully, I'm just focusing, we're focusing on like the billing. Yeah. It is like, there's a database. There's, we have the, these claims and invoices and systems that run every day. And then we have stuff once a month. And then we're trying to make like a microservice over here. And then we have a monolith here and there's a monolith over there. And so it's, it is, it is pretty spread. And so it is hard to like context switch. I think that's been the hardest thing. Sorry, Terrence, we're going to say something. Uh, no, I was just going to uh, say that one thing that comes to mind when it comes to like comparing a console to a web application is like the a PC has way more memory and and even even a phone like the CPU is a lot more powerful than a PlayStation One or a PlayStation Two, um, and so I think when it comes to these web applications, they just sort of build them to sort of, uh, maybe maybe they're not building them in the in the sense that, oh, I'm limited by the amount of memory that I, that I have. I'm limited by the CPU that, I, that, I, that I'm running on. The, the, uh, if you look at like a server that's gonna be running Gmail or whatever, it could be, it could have 100, 100, hundreds of gigabytes of memory and hundreds of gigabytes of storage space. So they don't really care about the edge cases that the, the oh, what, how do I summarize this? The end users space and memory is up to them. However, they choose to run their app on, on, on their, on their build is up to them. But Google is just going to use whatever top of the line. They're going to, if, if Gmail takes four gigabytes of memory or 20 gigabytes of memory, they don't care. They're like, that, that's how it runs. And if you don't have it, then, then, you know, you can't run it. It is what it is. Yeah. Close some apps, get some more memory. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's on you now, right? But with it's a self you. Yeah, with a self-contained system, you kind of that's what you you're got. <laughs> yeah. You're forced to. It's there yeah. it's it's totally different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you think maybe it would become easier because you're like, Oh, I can auto scale, right? Or I can do all this kind of stuff and you're like, Okay, but that's but not why? a but, but <laughs> well, not only why, but like now how are now how are you going to monitor that scaling? How are you going to end up like not having a fifty thousand dollar bill at the end of the month when you expected a five thousand dollar bill? Uh, uh, you got to watch more things. The more things that can change, right? So yeah, like like kind of like how you mentioned, uh, I do feel like there's a huge breadth of technologies that you have to learn nowadays, and it's always changing. Like. Uh, you never just sit down with one language and just focus on that for 10 years. It's like, you know, JS is hot this year, next is Golang, and then there's some other language. It's always like you're learning something new, throwing the old thing away, 
So yeah, I, I feel like I, I I see where you're coming from with the breadth versus depth uh, argument. Um, like, how how do you feel about that though? Do you think like we're kind of like sorting through too many uh, technologies for no real benefit? Or? I don't know. I mean, I think I don't think it's a bad thing to want to improve things, right? Um, but I think every language comes out and they're like, oh, Go, look what we can do with Go, or look what we can do with Rust or whatever. And um, I'm sure they work better for that person or that group. Um, uh, but it is, it does feel like a parachute like that every full stack developer gets to like strap to their back and then says, okay, now run as fast as possible. Um, and that, because it's just, there's, there's a limit to how fast you can go. Cause you got to spend some non-zero amount of time every year, like keeping up to speed on things. And which is fine when you have time to do that. But, um, and especially if you love it, but like, I, I make no, uh, I don't hide the fact that I was an engineer for a while and I was like, this is dumb. I don't want to have to keep learning new stuff all the time. Like I want, I want some of my lessons to like stick around and be things I can learn. And I kind of gradually moved from engineering to like TPM and then, um, and then from TPM to like engineering manager, because I just, the lessons I learned about how to help people, I uh, just don't change as quickly. They're more timeless. And honestly, they're more fulfilling for me. So I think I grew out of love with technology, maybe after 10 or 15 years of like doing engineering work. And I was just like, I don't, you know, maybe if I could stay in the same language, that would be one thing. But, um, you know, SQL developers probably have it the best. Like that's a really old language, right? But there are still people writing in SQL. They may have to do it in Snowflake now, but like, you know, but hey, they can still, they can still write SQL. But, but that's just me, you know? Do I think languages are created when they're not necessary? Absolutely. I mean, R is created, why? Because mathematicians didn't want to learn Python, right? I mean, like they were like, because their brain works different. Is that bad? Like, no, I don't think it's bad. Like, but if Python makes sense to you, R, R, R may feel weird. And if R makes sense to you, then Python might feel weird. And it's like, well, they're both using data science. Like, I mean, can you argue one's better to learn than the other? Yeah, it's probably good to know both. Um, but it's like having, I don't know, two screwdrivers that kind of do the same thing. I don't know. I'm curious, like, this is like, I'm like an old fart though. Like, I'm curious what Rachel's thought is on like learning new tech. I mean, where, where do you sort of stand? Like you're, you're three years in two or three years in, have you seen already like this need to sort of kind of study up on things that are coming out or is it pretty much what you learned in the boot camp is still like topical to the role? The only thing that's stayed consistent since I was in boot camp is React. Otherwise, I've done Node, Rails, spent some time with some Golang at my last team. Um, and their whole thing was like, we want people to be T-shaped, which is like, you know, you have some breadth, but you have more depth. And mm -hmm. so that's why I was more focused on front end. That was like the deep. And so like I started like delving into like, okay, how does JavaScript really work? Like things like closures, which I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, um, but things like that. So I was trying to go like deeper in how a language works. And I often tell juniors to like, there's lots you can learn, but I, I don't think it's better to like try to learn it all. I think it's better to try to get fundamentals in one language. So that's, that's my take. I, I mean, I've been doing this for years, so I'm a baby, but that's from what I've seen, it's better to understand like how something works. 
but that's best maybe just how my brain works. So. No, I think that, I think it's true. I mean, how many different saws do you need to cut a piece of wood, right? I mean, that's really what we're talking about. A lot of these languages can all accomplish the same thing. And you can say, oh, this one's better because I can write it in 10 lines of Python rather than like 300 lines of Java or whatever. But is that worth learning Python if you already know Java and your shop uses Java? Like probably not, it's probably not worth the cost switch. Um, I think it is worth building a wide base of like, uh, like you're doing like front end and back end and sort of having this wide base of understanding how lots of different software engineering is done. Uh, uh, so that when you decide you want to go even deeper, you're kind of exposed early on to a lot of different things. So you don't find out, you know, four or five years in that you don't want to stay in this field anymore and you don't have another thing to fall back on. Like we talk a lot in career development about going from T-shaped to M-shaped, right? Which is just this, multiple depths, um, not just one. It's good to start with one, but to build other ones that are so sort of like not as high, that's no longer an M. I don't know what that is. It's like a trident, but um, it's like, it's, I, I had to do, got to do it without making a obscene gesture. I don't know how to do that, but that's what it's like this, like that, like that. There we go. Yeah, like that. I like trident shape, that's fun. Trident shape, cool. Um, something that was really like interesting with why my past team went with Golang is they were like torn between like Golang and Java and they knew they were going to do everything in AWS. And mm -hmm. I guess there's something like called like a cold start. And I guess Golang is like very like fast in like in the cloud. And so that's why they went with Golang. So, I mean, I guess there are reasons to use like some technologies for different things, but um in that specific case, that's why they went that direction. I think generally, though, I like to stay focused on one thing, learn a few things, but it's hard for me to learn new stuff, especially since I've been a mom. Like, my brain capacity is just not what it used to be. Yeah. Do you yeah, ever worry about, like, whether your current tech stack is going to go obsolete? Because I know, uh, you know, if you were a Ruby on Rails developer, you were hot at one point, but now it's kind of hard to find that, that kind of job. I mean, I had barely know Ruby. Like, it's very much like, oh, go do this one random thing over here. And I'm like, I hate this. I hate this the whole time. And then I'm like, yes, get me out. Um, so that's how I feel about Ruby, being honest here. So I don't know. Um, I, I guess I'm concerned about that. I'm kind of glad that React is everywhere. because I'm kind of hoping like maybe there'll still be some like React work in like 10 years because everyone's like, how does this work? <laughs> like, I remember. Um, that's kind of what I'm hoping. So, but I don't know if that's a good hope. But. Like, here, here's where I'm at. So, what about you, Roger and uh, Terrence? Uh, I've, I would say, like, learn what's trending. That's what I would say. And develop your skills depending upon what's trending. Unless you want to go to a different industry. Like, I think, like, I think we talked about in the last podcast, Kevin, like, you know, banking industry, they use a lot of Java in the back end or like, you know, Amazon specifically is basically a Java shop. If you want to get into Amazon, you need to know Java. So I, other than that, like if you try to learn trending things, like React is not trending, like popular things, I guess not trending to get the job. If you want to learn something on your own, yeah, you can do that. And 
I would guess like start studying because for me at least like since I'm a, a React developer, I would say React is going obsolete. I mean, not the frameworks of React, just the plain React. That's you know, like I need to start studying uh, Next.js or Svelte or some other thing because React is slowly like getting slower, I guess. Next.js is quick since it has like server-side rendering. There is Svelte with its server-side rendering. Svelte, um, what it's called? Svelte Kit, I guess, something like that. But yeah, you always need to like stay on top of what's happening in the industry and like start moving towards it. Because I know that Next.js is like trending right now. A lot of people are using it because of the per performance optimizations that are going on with Next.js. So I need to like be like, okay, let me study it. Maybe, you know, my company will change it and I can help them out when they are changing it. What about you, Terrence? Uh, yeah, the, the curious thing about um, where I work is every two weeks or so, um, once, a, once, once, a, once every two weeks, we have these things called, um, they're, they're kind of like, coding endeavors or coding conferences, essentially, we, we sit down for about, I think about 45 minutes or like an hour a day, and somebody will present something, something new, that, new that they found. And so they'll demo, they have the opportunity to demo different tools like uh, Svelte or um, plugins to a React project or Next.js project, um, or, you know, um, Parcel, I think, was the last one that we discussed, which is sort of like a, a bundle, a package builder or sort of a bundle library. Um, I don't know how it works like uh, completely, but the cool thing about that is I think as long as you you don't have to sort of dive deep into all the with all the latest and greatest, like what's what's new out there, because some of it's going to fall to the wayside. You know, only one only one's going to sort of be on top. Like look at how look at where React is now. Look at where Go is now. Um, look at how we refer to things like Ruby and and uh, um, I guess whatever archaic WordPress or something you know PHP or something that that isn't as popular um, as it used to be, right? Um, I think as long as you dip your toe in and like Roger was saying and just sort of play around with these things uh, and and get experience, even if it's just building out a hello world, you'll be fine. Um, you don't have to sort of build, you don't have to dive so deep or think that you have to no react and build out something in Svelte or, or whatever the, the latest and greatest JS library is to try and stay ahead of the game. Um, that's just my two cents. Like, I, I think you can, you can do both. It just takes uh, a little bit of practice. Got it. So, uh, yeah, most of us here, uh, are kind of in the developer phase. So like, uh, if we want to move to management, uh, what, what do you what do you recommend that we we start learning and uh, how do we prepare for that, uh, Brian? And uh, you know when should we not move to management? Oh man, that could be four hours of content. I gotta be careful here. Um, uh, I have. Let me see. Give me ten seconds here because I made a whole deck about this. Uh, nope, it's not over there. Here we go. I won't, I won't share the screen because that would be that would be terrible. Uh, it really depends on why you want to become a manager. You know, like uh, uh, 
I think the people who become great managers are the people who just get to a point where they're just more fulfilled by helping other people succeed than they than they are about like merging a PR right or or writing an architecture doc, um, and that that may never happen for some people, and that's totally fine. If you find yourself at a company where you have to become a manager to like to earn more money, like don't become a manager for that reason. <laughs> that's a terrible idea. Um, go find a company where you can become more senior or become a principal or staff engineer or a technical fellow or distinguished engineer like Microsoft. Um, and you don't have to manage people. But the focus definitely shifts. Um, you're, it's now about you creating an environment where success is more likely to happen because you don't really directly control the success anymore, right? Your team does. Um, but you got to do it because you want Raja to succeed and you want to know what Raja's career goals are and you want to help him prepare for the next chapter in his career, but but try and make the decision for Raja to leave your team like as stressful for him as possible because he loves the team so much, right? That he loses sleep when he has to make that decision because it's so enjoyable for him, right? Um, but that you know he will leave, right? Like just like everybody will leave. Like you should assume everyone will leave in five years or less. It's like a vacation. So what do you want Raja to learn while he's on vacation with you? And 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 what do you and what do you want from him in terms of impact? Um, but like, make no mistake, you're five percent therapists as well, right? Like you know, people share with their manager really like private details, and they also talk about you at dinner, right? Like you are now the person that they talk about at dinner when when Terrence is complaining about their boss. I don't know, like, right? Um, uh, when that happens, it's like. You complain about your manager, right? And you, a lot of people leave companies because of their managers. And number one reason people leave a company, I have a terrible boss, right? So you got to be in the front, right? When there's conflict and you want to protect your people. And then you got to kind of learn to move to the back when there's success, right? And not like, and kind of let your team take the credit for it. Not everybody wants that and that's okay. Um, but those are good reasons. Wanting to see other people succeed realizing impacting Rachel's career and helping her get to senior so she can go apply for her dream job is more fulfilling, will always be more fulfilling for me than, you know, like writing, getting PR feedback. It's just like, and that's not to dig people who love PR feedback. It's just, that's not how I'm wired anymore. It's not. So. So for like those who don't really know what managers do, I know like for a lot of coders, it just seems like, hey, what, what, are, you, what are you working on? When is it going to be done? And they're in meetings all the time. Like, well, what exactly do uh, managers do? What do you say day? you do here, Kevin? Okay, so, um, um, so manager being a manager of software engineers is often a lonely thing because you don't have peers on your team, right? Because you you lead the team, and so. Managers have to spend time with other managers, uh, especially if they have like a three or four teams in like a pillar, like a miniature org, then you're having at least one weekly meeting with them to talk about, okay, Terrence, what's going on on your team? Do I, can I help? You know, here's what's going on my team. Terrence, can you help? Do you have someone with spare cycles who knows React? Because like my React person's on vacation and oh crap, we need to make this cutoff deadline. And so we can get our stuff into the Apple store or whatever. Um, so there's that. So sometimes there's like uh, sharing or pooling of resources. And then all of us usually meet with like the director or whoever we whoever we report to um, in order to understand where we're trying to go long term for creating like a technology roadmap. 
Um, then there's weekly one-on-ones, at least that's what I would do. So every direct report I had, I would have a 45 minute one-on-one every week with them. Um, that takes up a lot of time, right? Because if you've got 10 people on your team, that's 450 minutes of meetings a week. Um, then your PM wants to meet with you, right? Because your PM and EM are probably want to uh, get together and sync on like what's coming up for the next sprint. Like are the specs ready? You know, and then you got to nag the designer because the updated mockups aren't in the spec yet, you know, and then UX hasn't given you the feedback they need to on this or that. And um, and then the PM's got open questions to follow up on. And of course, your CICD pipeline's probably broken once a week. So you got to go nag info about that, right? You know, so you're, you do a lot of things that are like a tech PM, like a TPM might do if you don't have a TPM where you find a problem you can help with that's out the t- outside the team and then you you go after it and try and clear a path for your engineers. So if Rachel comes to me and says, like the build tooling's bur- borked, it's like totally broken. Like, I don't know what's going on. And I heard from Steve on this team that it's also broken for him. Then I'll be like, all right, I'll go talk to Steve and see if, if this is a bigger problem that we need to like report up. So I might go attack a problem in order to create a runway for, for feedback. And then on top of that, in my one-on-ones, I'm asking Rachel, hey, how's Terrence doing? You're working with Terrence right now. You're pairing with him, right? Um, what's he doing well? Like, what do you, what kind of feedback are you giving him? And I'm asking Terrence the same thing about Rachel. Hey, you're pairing with Rachel right now. How is she doing? Um, you know, if Terrence is the senior and Rachel's the junior, I'm like, what patterns of feedback are you giving her like that I should note that I can reinforce, you know, because I'm not there in that PR in those pairing sessions with you. Um, then there's career development plans for every single person on the team, right? Like where does Rachel want to be in six months or three years? Is she getting the opportunity she needs in order to become a senior if that's what she wants in the next 12 months? If my team doesn't have it, do I need to go to talk to Terrence, like the peer e engineering manager and say, do you have a project that Rachel could tech lead that she, because she has these skill sets, even if like we use your developers, right? I'm trying to find and create those opportunities. So there's all that. Um, and then there's feedback people are giving me about Rachel prefers to be managed this way and Terrence wants to be managed completely differently. And I have to be adaptable to get the best out of Rachel because that requires acting differently than getting the best out of Terrence. So, I mean, that's a lot of things, but um, Mm -hmm. there's that and then writing technical strategy docs and then a lot of insulating the team from uh, things they don't need to know about, but not hiding things from them. Hey, if you guys hear about this thing, don't worry, I'm taking care of it. You know, I had a number of uh, companies where we would call code yellows, right? A code yellow is like a, oh crap, we are in for so bad, we're gonna steal developers from every team at the company like 10% of all engineers are going to be put on this project starting next week for like six months and you don't get to use them anymore and they'll be back in six months. Um, and so fighting, you know, deciding whether or not we really want to lose anybody. I might be in a lot of meetings pushing back on my boss saying that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Like unless you were willing to write an email to my director, my VP saying we're killing this project. I can't, I can't lose any of these people. So, um, I'll try and keep it PG 13 here, but like you can be a crap funnel or you can be a crap umbrella as a manager, right? You better be, you want to be a crap umbrella. Like don't be a crap funnel. So, um, 
So that's an over answer, but like there's that stuff that takes a lot of time. Every at my last job, I had 14 meetings back to back every Thursday. So like, so you're right that we do have a lot of meetings. Yeah. Um, so yeah, first you see like my manager, he's in, he's in the meeting, he's in meetings like almost all day, like nonstop. Yeah. Like, if you can see the meetings, then like, I encourage you to like spy on your manager's calendar. If they've given you like visibility to see what those meetings are, because it helps you understand. Um, if you see larger blocks than an hour booked uh, like on your boss's calendar and they have it set to private, sometimes it's just focus time so they can go get something done. Um, because a lot of times their, their work is so interrupt driven, you know, Raja comes to me and he's like, I'm freaking out. I'm afraid I'm going to get fired. I just made a really big mistake. I kind of need to drop what I'm doing and like go talk to Raja right now. Right. It doesn't really matter what I was planning to do. Um, or Raja's like, I got a competing offer from another company. I'm thinking about taking it. Like I, that's kind of the most important thing, unless there's some Sev one incident that I need to be involved with. So I'm often like moving meetings during the day and during the week as well to sort of prioritize what's most important to, to work on. Does that so answer Rachel, your question? Oh yeah, most definitely. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so uh, Rachel, Roger and, and Terrence, like from y'all's experience then on the other hand, uh, like what, what are some of the good experiences you've had with managers and what are some of the bad experiences? Like what makes a good manager and what makes a bad manager in y'all's mind? Um, I'll just go real quick. Cause I need to, I need to go. Um, mm -hmm. The best manager I've had thus far was my last manager. And he was just very like, he was kind of hands off honestly, um, but was just super chill. Right. And, just jolly. Every time you had a one-on-one, -on -one, you just like talked about your babies or your kids. And for me, that was just really just gave me warm fuzzies, I guess. Uh, and the, I think that's because the manager I had before, it was like pulling teeth to like have a conversation with him. Right. So like just that personableness really made a difference um, compared to like the manager I have now, I'm still getting used to. Um, but he's, you know, he's very personable, but it's just different. So that for me, that personable is kind of like high value for me just because it makes you feel safe so but i'm sorry i do have to go it's been such a pleasure to meet you all and, and chat so thank you kevin for having me on the show I'm very glad to have you on uh you know whenever you feel whenever you want to come up come on again feel free all right thank you so much all have right a you have a good night So yeah, well, Roger and Terrence, what about y'all? I would say, don't micromanage me. I I hate that one thing. Like, do not be behind me asking me like, is is this done? Is this done? Is this done? Like, I I hate it. Like, like leave leave me alone. Trust me to do something, and I'll get it back to you. Even if I have to like do it off time, I'll get it to you. Like that's something that's just me personally. Like I don't like somebody who micromanages me, but I, I would say the same trust that he gives, like he puts in me, I, I put the same trust back into my manager too. If I have a problem, I trust my manager to be like, Hey, to solve that. And yeah, I think what Rachel said to like, be personable, like, don't be too, uh, what should I say? It's like too bossy, I guess. 
don't be someone who's like oh you're like you know you're like my underling like don't talk to me this way or don't mm. talk to me that way you need to be all professional while talking to me like if i say shit by mistake it's like oh everything is done now you know so it, i would say that you know just be open like just you're a human being too that that's what i would say to my manager like if my manager is a human being i'm a human being let's just talk to each other normally no need to be like you are like an above me and i'm below you kind of talking communication Oh, uh, yeah, Terrence, I think y'all mute. Yeah. We can't hear you. No, I still can't hear you. <laughs> if you have Blue Cross Blue Shield, Texas, you get Hinge Health for free. Did you know that? Didn't. I I had the, I had Hinge Health never opted for it but I still have it I guess it's free the insurance pays for it. Oh nice. Uh, you no. still need it. Yeah. Okay, I think that's right. just melting up, acting weird. Okay, we can hear you now. Okay, all right. I'm out of the phantom zone. Um, <laughs> all right, so as I was saying, like, um, have I had a bad manager? I don't... When I think of a bad manager, I think of, like, my managers at McDonald's. Like, mm -hmm. they were, like, they would, like, hover over me and, like, you got to you gotta upsell on, you know, orders and you got to... It was always pushing to, to get more out of the customer. And it didn't feel like an actual job. It just felt like I'm just a, a cashier who's who's there to to upsell customers and and force uh, somebody else to do something that they they initially didn't want to do. Um, and uh, being in the position that I am, uh, and I don't really consider myself like a manager or a leader per se. I'm just a a part of. I'm just a a piece of a, a of a team essentially, like the. I, I I'm the guy that sits in meetings and and hears uh, hears out the concerns and and troubles of other teams and and hears the plans and I delegate those tasks to to other teammates and and so that that's sort of what I consider my role. Uh, I don't like to consider my role as somebody who to okay you go do this and you, you're going to be the back end guy on this task and you're going to take these tasks and you're going to take these tickets and I'm going to write these tickets for you and and we're and how come that's not done because I have. I've been in that position. So uh, I, I, like Roger was saying, like it comes down to trust. Like I trust my, my teammates to, that they'll get, that they'll get what they say done in, in a timely manner. Because I don't, I don't, I know if I was in that position, I wouldn't want somebody breathing down my neck, trying to force me to, to get output and, and code out, you know, as fast as possible. Like there was definitely a, a time where like, we, I wouldn't say we missed a deadline, but it was like, Hey, we have to push this back. Like, like we're not, it's not ready to go live yet. And those things happen. And, you know, uh, like, um, so we were discussing earlier, like having that emotional intelligence to be able to say, like, like to talk to a non-technical person and be like, Hey, we're still running into some problems. We need to push this back by like a week or two. Um, you know, I hope you're okay with that. 
instead of you know dumping a bunch of knowledge like hey the api is down we can't test because of qa and xyz and abc because they're not going to understand they just want to know like is it is it going to be delivered or not um so having that social intelligence to be able to discuss non-technical problems is really cool uh, really good um as a as a manager um so to sort of answer the question like i feel like not being that bossy type of manager works more effectively than being the bossy type of manager because nobody wants you you, you might get results but it's not going to last that long like like that type of fire is not going to last long you're going to burn people out they're going to not want to be around you they're going to dread coming into work they're going to dread like talking to you even if you were to suddenly switch it up and like talk to talk to them as a normal person like okay hey crunch time is over i can talk to you like a person now you know what are you doing this weekend it's like like dude you just you just you just grilled me for the past three weeks or four weeks or whatever like <laughs> like i'm not in the mood to have a conversation with you about the about the la rams game like i'm i'm <laughs> i want to leave like i want to be in my own space so um i try to keep uh for lack of better words like i try to keep the, the fire at, a, at a, a a good medium like heat and just sort of make sure that everybody's you know in a comfort everybody's comfortable like uh there's a what is it there's a guy that I've, I've never we've never met before but he's from san jose and he's down here in la and he's like hey we should go get kbbq it's like okay yeah sure let's let's go grab something to eat like when are you free and we haven't decided on a date yet but i feel like in the four months or whatever that we've uh we're together we've sort of gotten to the point where it's like hey you know i work with this guy he seems pretty cool let's meet let's let's go have lunch or let's go hang out and um yeah i think i think that that's what it's that's what it's about even though even though you're working remotely like you should still treat the people that you're working with uh as people and not as like pawns in a game of chess so, so oh yeah I'll go ahead. I, no, no no that that's it that's it uh i have an analogy but that's good for both relationships in general and also in like for manager i guess it's like it's not a you versus me problem it's like us versus the problem yep that kind yep. of thinking helps a lot in teams like between like developers senior dev junior dev because most of the times like somebody is looking to blame somebody yeah if your manager is blaming you then he is a pretty bad manager like you never blame somebody it's just that okay there's a problem now how do we fix it who do yeah. we call who do we talk to to fix the problem yeah, yeah there's a oh, there's a good Liz and Molly uh cartoon about that Russia we could probably find it but it's um uh but it's exactly what you're describing the phrase I would the phrase I use with my directs is kind of like you know you and I are not across the table on this like we are sitting side by side and the problem is on the other side of the table right like we we are standing shoulder to shoulder to try and come up with the best solution to this problem and sometimes I've had like maybe a junior dev might get like a little uh feel personally attacked if someone's like like tearing into their their architecture proposal like in a review document or review meeting or something like that and i'm like you know that's not what you think it is it's not people saying how dare you propose this raja like you're a terrible developer for for suggesting this right now it's not what's going on so don't they're right next to you 
don't walk to the round to the other side of the table so you can get into a finger pointing match like and and because you've created a win lose situation and like a win lose situation with your coworkers or even with your managers just somebody's got to lose do you want to lose well probably not but you probably don't want your boss to lose either that sounds terrible like who like that's not winning find a way for you both to win right by coming up with a, a good solution to the problem together so don't accept win lose scenarios when when their win win options are available right yeah. yeah i got a question for you brian i know uh you know we kind of spoke you know everybody mentioned micromanagement and i know mm -hmm. like sometimes there's tight deadlines so how do you find that balance of not micromanaging someone but making sure everybody's on task and delivering on time yeah uh for most so i'm pretty hands-off too like as a manager and so i i nominated like basically a tech lead for every project like i just don't see any value in me being that tech lead for most of those projects like i can help guide uh by asking questions or or um i can give a lot of feedback in the form of a question that will help Roger gets to the right answer, right? Or help Terrence get to the right answer without having to say, Terrence, that's a terrible idea. I don't need to say that. I could say, I don't see how that's going to work like with the uh, with the rate requests we're, we're projecting. We're projecting 3 million requests a minute. Like, how do you see this working at, at that rate, right? And then Terrence thinks about it and he's like, oh, that's not going to work. You're right. I was like, I'm not right. I just asked the question. What are you talking about, right? So, um, or with if it's with Roger, I'm like, I just... Have you talked with security about this? You know, and my feedback is like, there's no way this is going to fly <laughs> with security. But I can ask the question and I can let Roger come to that conclusion. Um, so, but that doesn't feel like micromanaging, right? That's just asking questions to gain information, but it's a nudge. So, but when it comes to a deadline, you know, there's a tech lead responsible for hitting that date. And so that's the person I turn to and be like, hey, you know, it's two weeks away. And uh, we're only a third done with the work and it took three weeks to get the first third of the work done. Uh, we're not trending to doneness here. Like, what do you think we need to do? And Raja might say, we need to cut scope or um, we need to renegotiate a deadline um, or we need to bring in more resources. Um, like, which would you pick? And so I asked that question and he says, more resources. And I'm like, great, who do you think is like a rock star here that we could bring in that wouldn't have to ramp up too much? But these are all questions, Kevin, right? I'm not telling him what to do. Um, I'm nudging him to the right path. If you think more people is right, then who are the right people? Are they working on anything really important that they can't get taken off of? Well, I don't know. Okay, well, I'll go find out for you. Um, but coaching people through that, oftentimes Roger will come up with a better solution than I would anyway, right? If you have some humility as a manager, you know that you're not always gonna have the best idea. So by asking the question, you give Roger the opportunity to come up with some solution that you would never come up with. This happened with my kids like two weeks ago. I had a list of chores for them to do. I could have assigned those chores out and then they complain because this one doesn't like that chore and that one doesn't want to like that chore. And I just said, you know what? You guys have to get all these done by the end of the day. Just go figure it out. And, you know, I was thinking, well, you know, vacuuming is a big chore and doing the dishes is a small chore. How are they going to balance the big chores with the small chores? I could have stepped in and micromanaged, right? And I was just like, nope, get it all done. Uh, it's got to meet the standard of what your parents consider clean. 
But other than that, it's got to be done by 6 p.m. And you know what they did? They came up with a solution I would have never thought of in a million years. Here's what they did. They all, they both did all the chores. They just did each of them half. They each did half of the chore. So instead of like trying to figure out like, like, you know what I would do? Like if Terrence was my my sibling, I'd say, okay, Terrence, I think this is three times as hard as this. Like I'd come up with like a waiting system and then we'd negotiate. And I'm like, I'm not doing all those. You know, well, you're way better at this. You know, and we'd argue, this is what I would do. But we know what my kids did. They're like, let's just all do all the chores. We each just do the first half and then you do the second half. And then everybody's doing an equal amount of work. I would have never come up with that idea. Um, but because I didn't prescribe a solution or micromanage them, they came up with something. Do I care how it gets done? I don't care. Like I just wanted them to be done, but I would have never proposed that idea. So I think, I think people can surprise you like to Raj's point. If I give Raja a list of 10 things, like if I give him a list, like go build this cake, anyone's intelligence drops in half, right? Because they're in like execution mode because they're not thinking anymore. But if I say, Raja, we need to make a cake and I start asking him questions and I give him that autonomy, then um, you know, people can surprise you. They're a lot more capable, I think, than we give people credit for. Even when it comes to deadlines. Hey, that deadline's coming up. You think you're gonna hit that deadline? No. <laughs> What's your confidence you won't hit the deadline? Eight. Hmm, that's pretty confident. It's pretty important. What do we what do you think we should do? You just keep nudging. Yeah, that was good, man. Uh, like, uh, I know, like, we'll, I've seen, like, some of my managers, like, they have higher-ups, VPs or whatever, who kind of crazy. They do all the yelling and screaming and all of that stuff. Like, how do you avoid allowing that to affect you when you go have to deal with your team? Like, kind of like, how do you be that umbrella as opposed to funneling all of that down to your team? Yeah, I mean, that's part of the – that's one of the – you know, that's one of the things you have to deal with as a manager. You know, it's like you're going to get pressure from above. You can ask those leaders some questions. Um, you can give them feedback in the form of a question, just like you do with your direct reports. So let's say, so Kevin, you're my VP, right? So Kevin, you want this on Friday. It's not ready by Friday. Do you want me to ship what we've got? And I created a SEV1 incident. Because if we do, we're going to lose like $30 million. Hmm. I don't think you want that. Um, so it's, that's not an option. There is a physics problem, right? Like we literally have more work that can fit. I don't care if you put 20 people on this, it's not going to happen. So that, that's not an option that's on the table. I can talk to you about what options are on the table. Um, so what would you rather do? Is it really important because of some press release that we ship something on the day we said we would ship something? Like maybe we can ship like a reduced functionality. Or is it like some internal deadline that doesn't matter? We can push this thing, you know, VPs won't be happy, but they're not going to, are they going to remember a year from now that we slipped like by a week? If the answer is no, you slip by a week, come on. Like people will never remember that you slipped if you give them a great experience, right? They will always remember if you hit your deadline and you give them a terrible experience, you think they're going to remember that you hit the deadline? No, they're going to remember that you delivered a terrible experience to them, like which is more important, right? And sometimes the date is more important. There's like a legal requirement that you ship something. You're going to get fined a million dollars a day until you fix this problem. 
okay, we're shipping a reduced functionality so that the auditors can come in and verify we did our work. But if it's anything else that's customer facing, right? That that's where you just have to have the the sort of like the heart to heart with the leadership and say, look, I know this is not what you wanted. Um, um, I'm writing up an RCA to describe, you know, why it is we got in this situation and what we've learned from it and the things we're going to close to make sure it doesn't, it's less likely to happen in the future. Um, but, but that's where we're at. So here are the options. Let's talk about what's available. Let's not talk about what's not available. I don't know. Does that answer your question? Oh yeah. Well, Terrence, like, what, what did you get from that? Uh, from like, you know, you're kind of like a team lead now. Like, how are you able to apply some of that to your um, dealings with your uh, your developers? So I've I've gone through the motions, um, and I've had this conversation both with I want I consider him my manager. Um, we, we we talk every once in a while, and he's like, "How do, how are you feeling in your new role?" And I at first I was like, you know, I don't know. It's I feel like I've kind of just been like tossed into this uh, role and I and I don't know what I'm doing. It's like, you know, you push me into eight feet of water and I, I tell you, I can, I can swim in, I can swim in three feet and you say, all right, cool. That's good enough. Uh, push him into eight and then see how he does. Um, and he basically told me like, you know, if we miss a deadline or, you know, it's, if it's not mission critical, it's fine, but don't wait until last minute to speak up and, 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 you know, don't wait till the day of to say, hey, uh, by the way, we're going to need this or, you know, we're not ready yet. So for me, a lot of it has come down to being a lot more social. And I tell this to a lot of people, it's like my job is to be way more social than, it, than I've ever been as a developer. Right. As a developer, it's like you get a ticket, you work on the tickets, you have stand up in the morning or afternoon or evening or whatever. And then you might have a call every once in a while, but your social skills aren't as sharp, I think, uh, as uh, as your coding skills. Like, you, like you're you're getting paid to sort of be the developer and, and be smart and, and and solve these problems, uh, technically. And uh, and yes, you should be able to discuss those problems, right? But but when it comes to like a managerial position, like your the skill set is more so social than it is anything else. And the, the being able to articulate your ideas and not go on tangents because the time is so brief, it's like 30 minutes and, and there's six people that has, that has to speak or give updates on something or maybe even more. Uh, I've been on calls where there's like 50 some odd people and I, I, try, I try not to look at the number, right? <laughs> Cause I know like there's a bunch of people listening, right? But it's like, uh, in reality, there's a lot of people that are listening and there's a lot of, of teams that are that are all affected by the work that you do. Uh, and I think I think as a developer slash manager, uh, being able to discuss and socialize uh, with non-technical people, it, it, it's it, that's sort of what I've been working on most most of all these past couple months is really just um, sitting down, discussing technical problems with people and trying to come up with solutions and discussing those solutions with non-technical people has been the my biggest challenge where it's like, hey, we're going to build all this app. It's going to use this, this, and this. And here's a diagram on how all this works. And I'm going to break it down and explain like you're five years old, like how these things work. 
and like seeing that aha moment or hearing that aha moment from non-technical people like that's what feels good and um and con- like constantly like what do they say uh, measure twice cut once it's like i'm measuring twice every single day to make sure that we're on track of uh with tasks and um and yeah uh, it's 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 been a, a, a an interesting ride so far and uh, how about you, Roger? Like, uh, how do you give your manager confidence that if he's laid back and kind of gives you free reign, how do you give him confidence that you're staying on track and, you know, you're not, uh, you know, going to make him look like a fool or whatever? Uh, I would say, <clears throat> I would say my manager sometimes does reach out to me if, like, we do have the daily standups where I like update them what's happening. And if I say, like, my confidence is like a six, uh, as Brian said, he would ask those questions. It's like, hey, can you complete this? What's wrong? Like, what's happening? What's the blocker? How can how can somebody else help? Like, can this person else, can that person help? Or can you actually do it? Like, with, like, extra knowledge that's there, can you actually do it? Or do you need a day, extra day, so that you can complete this? I personally would... Uh, be um, more honest about what I'm doing and where I'm at. That helps me a lot and that helps my manager a lot. Because he can trust me on saying that, hey, if it takes me a day, he can be like, oh, okay, just take one more day and complete it. Or if I say I need help, he can be like, okay, he actually needs help. Like he has done, he has used all his options. He has done his work, but at the end he needs help. So he's going to send someone else to help me out me being honest like kind of helps me out helps me too because i may be stuck in some place that somebody else may help me out yeah i got a question for you brian like so from your perspective like how do you distinct like what what distinguishes say like uh this guy is really a go-to guy uh he's really communicative Uh, i can i can trust him whereas this other person I, i may need to monitor him a little more yeah. So uh, I use a framework called situational leadership. Um, I don't know if we talked about this before, Kevin, but you guys can look it up. It's a it's easy to find. It's uh, it's a two. It's like a four quadrants. So there's two axes involved. And uh, the the TLDR on situational leadership is uh, Terrence or Raja are not highly capable in every single thing they do. They're just not, right? Because they're starting to learn some things and they're experts in other things. And so as a manager, when I'm evaluating how to lead a person through uh, the situation they're in, I need to understand two things. What is their skill level? And what is their their will, their willingness to do the work? And as it turns out, uh, when you start out and you get out of school, or you're first doing something, you're super pumped to do it. Your will is like off the charts, right? Uh, But you often don't know enough to be scared (laughs) about what you're about to go enter. So your skill is low and your will is high. So you're like a little frantic, right? And we've all like worked with developers like this. They're like, they're all over the map and you're like, whoa, just do this thing, right? Those people need to be directed. So 
when Raja describes a micromanager, it's oftentimes because that manager is incorrectly assumed that you don't have the skill to do the work. And so they're trying to be very prescriptive. They're trying to hand you a recipe that says, here is what you need to bake this cake. Here are the ingredients. I've put them in the kitchen. I want you to get through the first three steps and then provide me a status update this afternoon. And I'm going to watch over your shoulder so you don't burn down the kitchen while you make this cake because your skill level they feel is low and your will is high and you might, you might go too fast. So that's like quadrant one. Quadrant two is you've now learned enough that you're almost in imposter syndrome, right? Like your, your will is actually lower. <laughs> like, man, I don't know if I can do this. Like, this is really hard. I didn't think leading people was going to be like this, but you have some skill. Now I need to like talk things through with you ask those questions and then i decide like how um what we do at the end but it's only after a conversation with you so i'm i'm bringing you into the discussion to figure out how we're going to do this we're going to sit down and look at the recipe and talk about how much of this and that to put in there but ultimately i decide and then i give it to you and then i ask you for an update at the end of the day so i'm giving you a little more time like more guardrails and then then you get to a point where you have pretty good amount of skill but your will is variable kind of depends on whether or not you're having a good week or whether you're stuck on a bug or something and at that point it's like i need to give you more support we have a conversation but you decide like it's your decision now this is when you start tech leading a, like a situation and then uh quadrant four is high skill and high will i delegate the problem to terrence terrence he's an expert at this he's got high will and high skill like Terrence, let me know if you get blocked on anything, but I know you've got this. So just run with this. And, you know, I may check in with you once a week just to make sure you're going to hit the deadlines um, and make sure that you're not forgetting that you can reach out to me for help. But I expect you reach out to me for help. If you have a problem, I know you've got this right. You know, so the thing is you don't put people in those quadrants. You put people in situations in those quadrants. So Raja, you could be in this D one quadrant, for one thing, and you could be in this D4 quadrant and be an expert for the very next thing you work on that day. And so the, that situational leadership, if you practice it as a manager, even in a one-on-one, -on -one, you could start in D4 and then switch to D1 for something new they just started and then be over here. And so you have to kind of flip the hats, you know, do you delegate? Are you coaching? Are you directing? Has a lot to do with where, whether you feel like the person has the skill and the will to tackle it. So I found a lot of success with that framework. If anything, I probably direct not enough. Like I, you know, I often um, a little more hands off and let people make some small mistakes. Um, uh, so I don't keep people in S1 very long, um, probably as long as I should. So I like that framework. Yeah, it's really good. Um, I know it's getting kind of late for everybody. Uh, did did uh, Roger or Terrence, y'all had any uh, questions for Brian? Okay, yeah, I got one final question. Uh, so, you know, when you have all these, uh, you know, all the developers, tech leads, et cetera, working under you, how do you identify, like, okay, this guy's really good. I think I'm going to pull him up to management. Mm -hmm. What are some of the traits? Um, so, management's kind of like a conscious decision to do a different job. Like, you know, I'd be interesting to hear what Terrence has to say about this, but like a lot of companies see like managers, like an expansion of a role 
where in my experience, it's been a shift of role. You know, it's stepping away from doing a lot of things you used to do um, and doing new things. And you, you, you only have a certain amount of time in the week to get those things done. You have to learn to let some things go that you got really good at for like seven years. Um, and you got to let other people take twice as long or three times as long as it would take you to do it. And that's still the right decision to let them do it and learn. Um, but when it comes to like when they're ready to move from like say non-senior to senior, um, uh, in terms of moving up as opposed to like changing from IC to management track, uh, it just has to do with like amplifying the impact of the people around them. Like if Terrence is just below senior and he's ready to go to senior, like I'm looking for when is Terrence like, if Terrence is on this project, does it make everybody better? Right? Because like not only is Terrence unblocking people with PR feedback, but he's also jumping in and troubleshooting and the feedback he's giving in architecture reviews helps steer away from some pitfalls. I look for that. Uh, when they're getting to senior, I'm also looking, can they lead one to three people for one to three months on a project? So like, can they be a tech lead? Because that's expected at most companies at the senior level. Um, and uh, do people at some point, more people, you start getting more inbound questions than you're actually asking outbound questions. There's a pivot that happens and it's right around the time you're like, oh my God, so many people are bothering me with questions on Slack. I can't get my work done. That's actually a sign that you're starting to become an expert right? Because everybody knows that Terrence knows more than everyone else does about this code base. And so Terrence will feel it. And as Terrence's manager, I would have to say, you know, that's a sign of respect, right? That people are coming to you and you got to start carving out time for that. You can't like ignore those questions because now that's, you are now going to provide impact on this team in ways other than just coding. Like, because at some point Terrence's expertise is more valuable than writing code. Like you will get to a point where interviewing people and mentoring junior devs and doing architecture reviews and convincing leadership to not build this thing <laughs> is the most valuable thing you could do today. A lot more valuable maybe than writing code because you might save the company 5 million bucks, right? By not making a stupid decision. So curious, Terrence, like what do you look for in terms of like when people are ready to move up? So, uh, so I don't, I'll be honest, I haven't made that decision yet. Like I haven't been on those decision-making, uh, calls or meetings, um, yet. And I would say like, they have to like really outperform their, their duties. Like there's a guy on my team, like who I know who would be like an excellent, like tech lead or like uh whatever they whatever next step he, he chose he chose to to uh to want to do like because again like you could you could say it, it's different when you you think that somebody's ready for a role but if they don't want that role i'm not going to force them to to do it if they don't want it if they want to stay a middle dev or senior dev or whatever then you know more power to them i want rather than be happy than say you're now a you're now a vp of whatever just because you have the the the, the smarts um, but I, I would say like, they would have to excel at their current role and, and do uh, go above and beyond. Like, and I think we've just, we've mentioned this like here and there throughout the night where it's like, uh, 
you can stay within your role and you can do your tasks and you can do what's what's given to you and and say, all right, I'm just going to do this and wait for somebody else to give me something to do. But you're only going to learn so much like you're going to learn like this little bubble and the entire like the entire tech stack or whatever is so much bigger than that that little task. Um, and as a developer, you should be willing to sort of explore like, well, if there's a language that you don't know that, you, that your company uses or a tool that, you, that your company uses that you don't know, you should explore it. Like, I don't know. I didn't know anything about Jenkins to the depths that I do, that I do now, but, uh, and, and, and especially like TDD and, and unit testing and, and things like that. Like, uh, I've learned so much more by pushing myself outside of just, uh, oh yeah, here's a ticket, solve it. And uh, I think anybody who's willing or anybody who is wanting to sort of exceed or excel in their position and, and get that promotion, you have to sort of, uh, you have to do, you put in that extra effort and and uh, start to uh, try to position yourself and shine brighter than your, your peers. Not, not to belittle them, but just to, uh, uh, how do I say it? Um, it's got to be not, it has to be in a sense of like, I'm doing my best not to outshine everybody else, but to uh, add more value to the team and, and push others to want to wanna be better. Yeah, I like that. Like there were three things I always told people about promotions, right? It was like, you need to be performing at that next level already for three to six months. It's not like we're going to take a chance on you, Raja, and make you a senior. Like, no, that's not how this works. Like you have already been a senior. It's in arrears, right? Like we say, we acknowledge that Raja, it's not a fluke. Raja's like median performance has now been above the minimum acceptable amount of performance for a senior for three to six months. So we're now going to raise the expectations, the minimum expectations for Raja which we call promotion and you will get more money and more stock for it. So that's one performing at that level Two, We need to have budget. So depending on the size of the company, if we can't afford to promote Raja, we can't do it. It doesn't matter if he's ready. It's usually not a problem up to senior. Like it's a problem after senior to like staff engineer at a lot of companies. And then third, and this becomes a real problem to get to staff is uh, we have business need for someone to actually perform at that level and solve those problems. There's a lot of seniors I've managed that had to go. I was like, you know what? If you really want to be a staff engineer soon, you probably need to move teams. Like we don't have staff level scope on this team. Like I could ask for it, but the charter of our team, as it's currently described, there's no room for a staff engineer here. Um, I could fight to go get more charter, but that's not going to happen overnight, right? I would have to take it from someone else or we would have to all be willing to do more work because we can't hire more people. So like that battleship's not gonna turn. Like this team over here, they have charter for like one or two staff level engineers and they don't have two staff engineers right now. If you really wanna make this your goal for 2023, we should talk about whether or not it makes sense to like plan out a transition for you to move to that team because you're just gonna be unhappy. Like you could be performing at that level and we have the budget and you could still not get promoted on my team, which is a hard conversation to have with somebody that you gotta move, you gotta leave if you really wanna like grow. 
but that's that's true at some point for every person right um it's just at certain levels it's more difficult than others did anybody else have any uh closing comments yeah i think it's a good one uh ended on man i appreciate y'all uh coming back man we definitely got to do this a lot more often it's like so many useful insights happy friday everybody happy friday, happy friday. Uh, we'll catch everybody next time peace peace